0: Welcome to CCO Podcast, calling college students to serve Jesus Christ with their entire
1: lives. All right. Um, So, as I said, what this breakout's about is about the idea that studying science and being in a science-related profession can be a Christian calling. Now, you're here already. You've already been inundated with the idea that everything matters. So hopefully I don't have to convince you that this is possible, but I more want to illustrate what that can look like, some with some of my own story and then some with some other examples. There are a lot of important questions that people ask related to science and faith, most of which we are also not going to talk about in this workshop, but I did want to mention that there's a really wonderful little book called Science and Faith, Student Questions Explored, that Byron has assured me he has at the bookstore. And if any of you are really concerned with issues related to things like human origins and uh, what is it like to be a scientist if you are dealing with colleagues who think that Christian faith is irrational and things like that, there's some wonderful little essays in there. And I particularly recommend the essay um, by a plasma physicist that's chapter 8 that sounds like it's just about how to start evangelistic conversations with your colleagues, but it's actually much more. So um, I really recommend this little book if you're interested. Um, Please feel free to keep coming in. Find some seats. There's some space over there. So what are we going to do in our next hour? In a couple minutes... I'm going to give you a chance to talk with each other around you in small groups just about why you're here, because later on in the uh, breakout, I'm going to give you the chance to talk in those small groups to try to apply some of the ideas that I present to you to thinking about your own situation. And so I want to have you just have a moment to meet the people who are with you and find out where they're each coming from. Then, as I said, I'm going to talk a little bit about how we can think about science as a Christian vocation and try to illustrate that with my own story. Then I'm going to give you the chance to think about how this could be your calling, not just in the future, although that's important, but also right now while you are a student. And then finally, we will end with some spiritual disciplines. Uh, Props to Justin Early from last night that I think are very important if one is pursuing a career in uh, a calling in science. So that's what we're doing. So take just a couple minutes and turn to like a couple neighbors around you. I know this room makes that difficult, so just make it work as best you can. Tell them just a little bit about why you came to Jubilee at all, and then in particular, what was interesting about this workshop to you why did you want to come to this how does the idea of science and calling connect to you so just a couple minutes go ahead I'll call us back together in a few all right I'm going to interrupt you now I'm sorry I know many of you might not have been finished you're having some great conversations so that's good it's hard to interrupt you Going to take advantage of the oh I don't need to I was going to say I'll take advantage of the microphone but so after our next conversations I will um, ask some of you to share some of the things you came up with um, in the interest of time I'm just going to take a minute and tell you a little bit about why I'm here doing this workshop tell you a little more about myself so I teach physics at a four-year liberal arts college in Pennsylvania yay Pennsylvania it's um, Swarthmore College outside of Philadelphia. Um, I have two grown or almost grown children. My son, Timothy, is almost 23, and he's a campus minister at Rice University in Texas, where he was an undergrad. My daughter, Amy, is a student at Cornell University, and she is actually here at Jubilee, which is awesome. Um, I have been a professor at Swarthmore College since... Uh, If you do the math, actually, I'll just tell you, since my son was six and my daughter was three, that's part of the story that I'll talk about a little bit later, um, following a somewhat unconventional career path in order to prioritize family as well as work. Um, I've loved science since I was a little kid. My parents were my sort of first science teachers because they both loved learning and loved the world. And so I grew up learning science as this wonderful thing to talk about with people who loved me. Um, and so it was always just something that was a joy for me. And so uh, what more wonderful thing could I imagine doing than getting to like keep sharing that joy with other people? And I'll talk about how, of course... Pursuing um, a career in science is not always joy it 's a lot of hard work, it can be a lot of struggle as well, but that that joy is part of what keeps me going so that 's a little bit of my own story so to answer the question of how science can be a Christian vocation. We have to kind of step back and say, well, what are human beings made for? What are we all made for? What are the ingredients of all human calling? I'm going to just pull out a couple quick themes, from some from what uh, has been talked about already in the conference, some from things that maybe will get explored later. So if we look at the Genesis chapter 2 narrative, uh, which you heard this morning, um, we see the first scientist and the first applied scientist. So the first applied scientist, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till and to keep it. Um, And to till and keep it well, he needed knowledge of what was uh, needed by the garden, which he figured out by practice, by trial and error, as many applied scientists do. But more than just like the practicality, he also gave names to the cattle and the birds of the air and the animals. These things don't need names for functional purposes, but it is part of beholding the creation and just taking delight in it as a good thing to name it. You, know, you don't need to name, like how many of you have named the appliances in your house? or, okay, all right, so maybe you love your appliances and you, like, care more about them, but mechanical things you tend not to give names to, right? When you name something that invests some extra creatureliness, some extra care in it, and so scientists like to look carefully at things, understand them, but also just um, appreciate them for what they are, and so... Adam gave names to it. And I think this is a big part of what humans are called to, not exclusively science, but to care for the creation, to steward it, but also to behold it and to enjoy it. I really like the metaphor of the gardener as part of understanding this. So Adam and then Eve with him were gardeners, Gardeners cultivate necessities, certainly. They cultivate food, but they also cultivate beauty and knowledge. You grow flowers. We don't need flowers um, for most purposes, but they make our lives richer. So how about another take on what it means to be human, what we're called to do uh, from a different part of Scripture? So I love this description in Proverbs 31 of the enterprising artisan woman. She designed, and I just love this paraphrase from the message, she designs gowns and sells them. She brings the sweaters she knits to the dress shops. Her clothes are well-made and elegant. This is also a piece of what it means to be human, to take what's given to us in the world, turn it into new things, and new things that serve a purpose that meets some needs, but also are beautiful and satisfying. I gave you the um, <clears throat> a little, some more canonical translation as well. And then it's additional phrase, let her works praise her in the city gates. Um, and I love this little phrase because I think it evokes how when we as human beings are involved in making things out of the world, whether it's making dresses and sweaters, or whether it's making something else. We're imitating our creator. And then the scripture suggests that in some little tiny way, what we make praises us when we make it well, in the same way that we as God's creatures praise Him for His goodness and for all He's made us. So, in some little tiny way that's not at all uh, comparable to the way that we are called to worship our Creator, our works um, reflect back to us uh, the goodness of what we've done in the same way that we reflect back to God the goodness of who He is. So I think this is also a piece of what we're called to be. We're called to be imitators of our creative God by being creative ourselves, whether it's creative with stuff, creative with ideas, creative in relationship. So does all this matter? Does it matter that we are being imitators and stewards of The creation, I believe it really does. And for that, we have to go to the other end of scripture. This is a verse from Revelation that suggests to me that whatever we make that is of value is enduring. It says in Revelation 21, I saw no temple in the city. This is the new Jerusalem, the culmination of the new creation. That's the city. Its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God is its light and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. People will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. So we have this lyrical description of the new Jerusalem, this amazing place where finally God's purposes will be fully realized in the new heaven and the new earth. And most of the beginning of this description is about the glory of God, as it should be. How amazingly, we we won't even need any sources of created light because the glory of God will be so great, it'll provide all the light we need. But then there's this little thing at the end, people will bring into this city the glory and the honor of the nations and other parts of scripture suggest this is the things that human beings have done and made and learned that are good that are worthwhile that will endure so i just want to emphasize that this suggests that the products of our creativity are meaningful to the lord and it doesn't say what it is like there's lots of different possibilities for what the glory and the honor of the nations are. But I want you to think that whatever you end up using your creativity and skills to develop that is good, that is worthwhile, that may be a little piece of a glory and honor of the nations. Okay, so what am I saying? So just to summarize what humanity is made for, we're made for stewardship and care for the creation. I might say stewardship and service, now that there are so many human beings, we need to not just care for the creation, but we need to care for our fellow human beings. We are made for imitating our creator, whether that's by making those beautiful sashes and sweaters, whether it's by naming the animals and looking hard at them. And then finally, we are made for worship, which that revelation passage evokes as well as um, showing us what we make make matters. So what does it look like to try to do these three things as a scientist in some kind of science profession. And so I said scientist sort of for short, but there's a lot of different professions that connect to science. There's all the health professions. There's teaching um, science in high school, middle school. There are There's working at science museums. There is um, being an applied uh, technician or scientist at some kind of company that involves technology. There's all kinds of different ways that one can engage in a scientific profession. And so I'll probably say science professions or scientists just for short, but include all those things in that. So what are the ways that we can do these three things? So I think stewardship and service is pretty straightforward, right? Because we have this amazing opportunity Um, with the knowledge that science gives us to care for the natural world and to help meet human physical needs. (coughs) So our world is in more need of care than ever before. Um, I think the scientific evidence is pretty um, overwhelming that... that human activity is causing an impact on our climate and our ecosystems that we need to figure out what to do about, to take good care of our planet. I also think that science can help us do that well, and there's huge opportunities from developing new technologies for cleaner forms of energy, for more um, energy-efficient kinds of transportation and lighting and so on and so forth, Um, There's just huge opportunities there. There's amazing opportunities to meet human physical needs. Obviously, the health professions are an obvious direct way to do that. I want to take just a couple minutes and tell you um, about golden rice. Does anybody know about golden rice? Anybody heard about it? So there's not very many, so I'll I'll summarize. So... In parts of Asia where rice is a staple of the diet, <clears throat> there's a major nutritional problem from vitamin A deficiency because normal rice, as, just as it works in our bodies nutritionally, tends to not facilitate absorption of vitamin A, which is essential for functioning eyesight. So I don't know if your parents told you when you're growing up to eat carrots so that you would have good eyes. um, And I don't think that's actually a correlation thing. But vitamin A is the thing that makes carrots orange. And it is essential for eyesight. And if you have a serious vitamin A deficiency, um, consequences include blindness, um, which you can imagine is absolutely tragic for anyone, particularly so in the developing world where if you're blind... You know, there aren't the resources to care for you. So some biologists set out to say, can we make a modified form of rice that is safe to eat, but also will deliver vitamin A and in a means in which people can absorb it to address this nutritional Um, deficiency in a way that's culturally sensitive because the peoples of that area are used to having rice be a staple of their diet. You know, you don't want to be like, you got to eat something different. You know, it's not good for you to eat rice, you know, but so they said, can we come up with a way to um, use breeding and use genetic technology to develop a rice that is healthier for that? It was a long, complicated, difficult process with a lot of setbacks, the way science Uh, often is, and you accomplish something you think is good, and then you find out it didn't work so well. But over like a 30-year process, they finally developed a form of rice that um, you can kind of see in this picture. It's golden. It's yellow. Um, And that's because it has vitamin A in it in a bioavailable form. Now, there have been further complications uh, with how do you get people to Um, buy into planting this rice, to eating it, to um, how do you work with local government and agriculture so that those seeds are distributed in a way that is financially available. So there's lots of further complication where we need all your friends who are in the social sciences and who are in um, policy and in government to help solve those problems as well. But this is a way that scientists can really engage and uh, contribute to meeting human physical needs. One of the ways it um, is the most salient for me um, is education, because that's a lot of what I do. So I do a lot of teaching um, as part of my role at Swarthmore. <clears throat> and So in recent years, I've had the opportunity to lead programs at Swarthmore that are aimed at helping make our science um, education more inclusive and more welcoming to students from a whole host of backgrounds, including high school backgrounds that haven't necessarily prepared them so well for college. Um, And that's been a really rewarding way for me to feel that I've been able to use my science education Um, in a way that is serving others. Because we have a lot of students coming who really want to learn science and pursue careers in sciences, but their high schools might not have prepared them so well to thrive in their courses. And so I've been working on initiatives that involve helping science faculty across the whole science division learn to teach more effectively, especially for students coming from a wide variety of backgrounds, been working on initiatives helping mentor students and build cohorts within departments to give them a really supportive feeling, so that students who um, need some time to ramp up to being at the same level as their classmates nonetheless feel included and valued and supported. Um, And then many of my colleagues were already doing this kind of thing, involving students as members of their research project or other meaningful projects in the community, Um, but just helping faculty know how to do that and particularly how to do that in a way that welcomes in the whole diversity of students. So that's been a really exciting thing for me to be able to be involved in. And I wanted to just give you a couple pictures from... um, the program, some of the mentoring and cohort building programs that we've launched where students um, present posters on their projects that they've done um, and where we've taken students to scientific facilities to tour around. And so this is from a particular program we have for students who are first generation in their family to college to help them be um, well prepared and welcomed. in. So that's the sort of stewardship and service side of what it's like to be a science uh, professional. So I want to give you a moment to talk with your neighbors for a few minutes, and then after some small group conversations, I'll ask a few of you to throw out ideas. What are ways that you can imagine that in the particular way you're interested in being a science professional? How can you imagine your work serving others Either right now, if you're doing stuff at school right now where you can think of ways I can serve others with what I'm doing right now, or in your long-term future. So take a few minutes and talk with the people around you, and then I'll ask some people to share some ideas with the group. Okay, this time I'm going to start by taking advantage of the microphone. Um, all right, yeah, I'm learning. Um, so could a few people share some of the things that your groups talked about, about ways that you can serve with science either in the present as a student or in the future? Um, so maybe some group from the back. Is there anybody who's uh, willing to share in this back corner over here? Great. Uh, so like, stand up and speak loud so everybody can hear.
2: i a similar teacher that uh, science can help serve other their decisions. I I've been working with kids for like nine years, and so I think that when you get to put it age, you can start to instill different properties and values, in it. and I started off in, like, robotics, playing a robotics club, so I got the science piece, I didn't really have the got piece tied in, so as I was like, I had to kind of put that part into it myself over the homeschooling, but I think it would be amazing to see, like, communities and groups and uh, clubs that can still stem in really fields and children as well as showing how God has uh, graced us with the ability to do these things and how these things don't prove God to be existing, but these things are a obvious, like, they're my product. of
1: Awesome. Thanks, Gerald. Actually, Gerald is channeling so what the chapter 8 in this book talks about how, that I mentioned, um, this physicist from Princeton, Bob Cata, uh, worked with his church to include a science component into a vacation Bible school that his church helped put on for a nearby community of need. And the STEM component is, very, is a, a wonderful resource to provide, especially if kids are in a school where there aren't, their school isn't as well-resourced in that way. It was a way of very concretely loving the community, but also, like Gerald mentioned, bringing in this idea of also communicating God's love uh, to kids. So that was awesome. Let's see. Um, somebody over in the back half of this side want to share? Yeah. Can you stand up and say your name and uh, share briefly?
2: Alan to Joe. Um, so full disclosure, I'm not in science or anything. <laughs> but I was talking with Ian here, who's an expert in dark matter. Teaching me a lot, but we were just talking about how thinking about like Joseph in the Old Testament, hmm. how if I was in his position, if I went through all he went through, Hmm. be put in a God has me here to talk about him to all these people hmm. which I'm sure, you know that's a part of it but really God was like Joseph I have you here and saved tens of thousands of lives hmm. and so God certainly certainly cares about us sharing it but I think sometimes uh, we put him in a box I and mean, hmm. just like reach the hmm. lost reach the loss. and he's, hmm. he's so merciful and he's like I want to do more than that I want to help the people that don't even ever come to know me hmm. I want to give them life
1: right great thank you great somebody for oh yeah sorry great someone from the kind of front half of this side here want to share what your group talked about yeah great
2: um to can you stand up and give yes. your name um, my name is Autumn like the season um, and I am a, a mathematician um, and was sitting next to one as well so um, one of the scientists in STEM and um, it we got different perspectives as uh, I enjoy pure math and I enjoy applied math um, but in both of that we can uh, research and find out these things about a field most people don't like and be able to educate people about how um, it's beautiful as a field and how it um, lends to uh, a beautiful God that we, we learned about in this ah, session.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> all right, And last quadrant here. Uh, yeah. Um, go for it.
0: I'm Sam, and I think one of the cool things that I found from our group is that we all had different ways that we can see ourselves helping Um, in science, like impact the world. So for me, I'm more medical based. So just helping like bridge the gap between like the regular community and the professional medical community and Mm. just making it more of a community where you don't have to have fear that we're not gonna act in your best interest. Whereas Kylie here is more environmental based and just Mm. how like God put us on this earth and it was so good and how we have to really work to keep it good and like destroying the planet and the environment and then Hmm. i'm really sorry i can't remember your name mark Mark, um he's a mechanic um studying mechanical engineering and he talked about how um to help the people like he's going to build these great things that we can use so just all about how like no matter what field of science you're in or what aspect you like like you can help the Hmm. world and kind of be god's people in different
1: ways awesome thanks And did you have something to share um, yeah. also? Well, um... Could you introduce yourself? Yeah.
2: My name is Dominique, and I'm architecture, and it's, like... Um, how oh, cool. The people I was, like, talking to, and, like, me, like, it's it's harder, like, it's, um, at least just for me, an architect, because it's, like, on a larger scale, you're um, having, like, the masters, because you're, like, for me, I'm, like, building buildings or whatever, um, and I've been sit- I was sitting and talking to them mostly, like, medical or uh, science, like... Uh, specific majors and like yep. it's easy to have that person-to-person like interaction but one thing that um, we were saying like of trying to understand how to serve people in the future like like how do you go from going from one to one to like serving more people mm. and how do I go from serving a large scale people that might not even notice what we're doing versus like helping sure. them one to one so like it's sure. like the inverse of right stuff. like how do we help the right. On an emotional and right. level with our wages.
1: Great. So Great. Is. Thanks, Dominique. Um, yeah. And I think that ties back to the idea that caring for, you know, kind of a similar vein to what um, I'm forgetting your name now, but you said about how Joseph, how God gave him the opportunity to help um, save the people of Egypt and the surrounding lands from famine. Probably a lot of those people didn't know that he'd done that, but it was still good in God's eyes. And so in a similar way, if you build a great building that serves people well or you build a really cool mechanical thing that serves people well, even if they don't know that you did it and that you did it to the glory of God, that there is still that is still honoring God by serving his people even if they don't know. And what you need is you need people around you who affirm that what you've done is valuable, especially people in your church community or your Christian community who say, yeah, that was really worthwhile. And it's one of the unfortunate things about churches that often churches don't affirm the work, uh, whether it's scientific or some other kind of work, that their members do as having this kingdom value and so I think the fact that you all are here at Jubilee and you're getting a dose of this, you can take this back into your churches and you can find out what are the people in your churches doing and how are they thinking about using it to serve the Lord. And when they are, you can affirm them. And when they haven't even thought about it, maybe you'll get them thinking. So, so this is great. And I wish that we had time to hear from more of you. Um, but we only have an hour, and I need to let you get to lunch in a timely fashion, so we'll keep going. So the other dimension that I want us to reflect on a little bit is this idea that we bear God's image, we imitate God, we're like God when we contemplate and behold his creation. So the astronomer Johannes Kepler who discovered the laws that determine planetary motion, was a very dedicated believer. And he described his work of astronomy as thinking the Lord's thoughts after him. That it was like these laws of science, for him it was astronomy, but for all of you it might be something else, uh, whatever your own field is. As you work your way through it, as you think your way through it, which is what you have to do to master it, right? You know, someone else can tell it to you. But for you to master it, you've got to work your way through that whole thought process yourself. As you think your way through it, you're kind of doing what God did when God made the whole thing. And so you're just kind of following along. It's not that, you, it's not that God needs you to do it. But if any of you have ever watched Parents with Small Children, parents think that what their little kids do, a lot of the time, they just think it's really awesome, even though it's not necessary in some way. Like, oh, look, they're learning to walk. You know, Well, I mean, they learning to walk might actually be a problem for their parents because now they can get into stuff that they couldn't get into before. But at the same time, you're just so excited to see your child growing and learning I think in the same way, God takes delight in us growing to be more like him. And part of how we grow to be more like him is that we learn the things that he created. So that's what I see is is in this beautiful image of thinking the Lord's thoughts after him. There's also even a verse in Psalm 111, Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them another really eminent physicist i mostly know about physicists just because that's what i'm in um, who discovered the laws of electricity and magnetism that are how we figured out that light is is made up of electric and magnetic fields his name is james clark maxwell he was another very serious believer He was also the director of the Cavendish Laboratories, which was England's um, big physics research laboratory. This verse is carved into the stone arches over the doors to that building. It's in Latin. (laughs) Um, I forget how how it goes in Latin. But then another Christian who was at the Cavendish Labs when they said, oh, we really need a new building. This old building is wonderful for historical purposes and we'll keep it, but we need a new building for our research. When that new building was being built, this guy went and said, you know, this is part of our heritage, that this is over the doors. We should have that over the doors in our new building. And people were like, huh? But he kept at it. And then finally, like, okay, sure. It's part of our heritage. It came from Maxwell. Maxwell is pretty amazing. So we should do it again. So on the new building... In English, this is also over the doors. And so I just want to emphasize that as believers, first of all, there are more of us out there than you might think, <laughs> for whom studying the Lord's creation is an act of worship, an act of delight. Um, and secondly, it gives us Unexpected opportunities to share that delight with other people. Then they may not. They may just be like, "Huh, that's kind of strange." But you never know. Maybe later on in life, it will come back to them. So I want to emphasize that, regardless of what kind of profession you'll end up in, all of you are students right now, and I want to encourage you to think about how can you approach your studies as thinking the Lord's thoughts after him as delighting in the works of the Lord. So I want to give you a couple minutes to talk about two related things. Um, Both. I want you to generate ideas for how can you think the creator's thoughts after him or approach your studies of worship. And I, I really want to encourage you to think practically, you know, like what are the things that get in the way of your approaching your studies that way? Because I don't know about you, but most days when I go to work, that's not the mindset I'm in. And um, and then I'm like, oh, wait, I have to give this talk at Jubilee next week. Oh, wait, I'm supposed to be like approaching my work as worship. Oh, how did I forget to do that for the last three weeks? You know, um, so think about what are some practical ways you can help make that more a part of your life. <clears throat> but then also I want you to. Also, feel free to think bigger because that's kind of an abstract idea, and sometimes you know you might gain some traction, and it might not. But also, how can you think more broadly about being a gardener for your campus community where you are right now? Both your science departments, your science classes, and your community in general. How can you be cultivating that beauty um, and that necessity, that uh, um, those needs? And if and it might be that your campus community needs a little more joy and delight in their studies and a little less just feeling like, oh my gosh, I've got a paper to do, I've got a problem set to do, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to get it done. So these two might fit together. So let me give you like five minutes to talk about that with your groups, and then we'll take a couple of ideas if we have time. <clears throat> so discuss. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to ask you to wrap up your discussions. So, like, take 30 seconds and finish that thought. Okay, well, that was less than 30 seconds, but I guess once I interrupt you, it's hard to keep going. Okay, so... So I'm sorry, I've realized just looking at the time, I think we, we don't have time for a report out, but I really want to encourage you to keep this conversation going with the other folks you came with. And if anybody wants to share their ideas with me, um, after, if you don't feel like you have to rush off to get lunch, um, I'd be glad to hear more about them. But I understand we've got a full schedule. This workshop used to be a 75-minute workshop. I've, I don't know how they shortened the, uh, sk- the workshop slots. But anyway, so so I think these are the ways we think about um, science fields as a Christian vocation. And I wanted to add a few things that I think are really important for us to think about um, as well that aren't really particular to science, but I think they're important to say. So the first thing is that work is not the only thing you're called to. I think Every human being is called to a whole life. You're called to whatever you do for work. Many people will work for pay. Some people will work in the home not for pay. But you're also a part of a family. Even if you're not one of those people who gets married and has children, you have, at a minimum, you have parents. (laughs) Um, You might have brothers and sisters. You might have extended family. Even if you have very little in the way of biological family, you may have people who you've found through the church who you're committed to as though they're family. And historically, that's what the church has been. The church was another family. Um, And so... That's a really important part of your life, as is the bigger church community that you're part of, um, who you may not be as intimately involved with. And then you've got neighbors. You have people who are nearby you in some way whose lives intersect with yours um, at all different levels. I just want to emphasize that we don't want to get into thinking of our calling as solely being about our work. And um, I think, you know, for me, there were two ways in which this manifested itself. So one was that I met my husband while I was doing my Ph.D. Um, We got married when I was about halfway through my Ph.D. And we knew that we wanted to have children. And we knew that we didn't want to wait until what many people said I should do, which is to wait until I had tenure to have children, because that was 10 more years at least. So instead, in the, in the natural sciences, if you're pursuing a professor position, after you finish your PhD, you do a postdoc, um, which is more research apprenticing under um, a faculty member, but with a greater degree of independence. And all of you who are not interested in going into academia, you can think about, are there things that are analogous to this in, in your own fields. So I interviewed for postdocs looking for someone to be my supervisor who would be willing to have me work part-time. I didn't know anybody who had done this. I didn't have any examples. I was just like, you know, I am 26 years old. I would like to start a family. Is it an option for me to work part-time? So you only need one opportunity like that that's a good opportunity. And I found, through the grace of God, an amazing opportunity. So I worked part-time as a postdoc while both of my children were born until my son was six and my daughter was three. I worked full-time until my son was born, and then I switched to working part-time. Over the course of the seven years I spent in that postdoctoral position, I basically accumulated the total amount of time that normally somebody would spend in a postdoc, which is about three years. Um, It just took me a lot longer than anybody else. Um, And for some kinds of jobs later on that might have been a disadvantage, it was not a disadvantage for the jobs that I applied for. I got called for an interview at every place I applied to, um, I took the first job I was offered because they were on an earlier timetable than everyone else. So I, didn't, so I had to j- cut off all the other jobs before they had, when I had interviewed, but they hadn't yet finished making their decisions. So I don't know how many other jobs I would have been offered. Um, but I say this not to brag so much as to say I made this very unconventional choice that people were very surprised at. And in the end, the Lord provided for me In a way that um, I think came out of the combination of God's faithfulness and the fact that I did the best, I did my best work for uh, my postdoc, even though I was working part time. You know, I gave that work my all when I was there and uh, helped set expectations with my mentor so that it was clear what he was hoping I would accomplish in the limited time that I have. So I just want to encourage you to think about what are ways that all the dimensions of your calling fit together and to be willing to try um, it, unconventional things. Um, because then, two years after, I, um, while I was still in this part-time postdoctoral position, so I had to go to the benefits person at the university and because I had to go on maternity leave when my son was born, and we had to figure out what would happen with my medical benefits. And she was like, we've never had a pregnant postdoc before. I have to figure out how to do this. Well, two years later, someone else came along and wanted to do this. And the HR director was like, I'm so proud to say we have a policy for what to do when we have a postdoc who needs to do maternity leave. They were like, well, look at us. We've figured this out. So you can be a blessing to people sometimes when you want to blaze these unexpected paths. So for any one of you, your story of how you are called as a whole person may look very different. There may be different concerns facing you. But I just want to encourage you to pr- approach it with creativity and with trust in the Lord and with discernment. The other thing I wanted to say is, so I gave you all this you know, stuff. So greater the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. You know, This all sounds wonderful, right? Well... I don't know about you, but I don't feel this way when I go to work every day necessarily. And what we heard about this morning is why, which is that the fall has changed what work is like for us. Even work that's good, that benefits other people, that should, in principle, be a source of delight. You know, what we heard in Genesis 3, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you, for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground. So this gardening image, which sounds so wonderful, actually, it's not that much fun being a gardener a lot of days. Um, and so I wanted to just leave you with the idea that for Christians, we also have to not only take into account the idea that the fall just makes work hard for everyone, but in fact, we follow a crucified Lord who willingly took on suffering for the sake of healing and redemption. And in fact... Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Um, I was a number of years ago, um, like 15 or 16 years ago by now, I was at a conference for graduate students and faculty where one of the speakers said, we are called to the places where our academic disciplines are in pain. We're called to be there where there 's pain, and to try to bring wholeness and brokenness in the same way you all are, may not be called to academia, but you may be called into fields where there is brokenness, there may be something in architecture where people have just stopped thinking about you know, the people who the buildings are meaning are intended to serve, and there 's things they 're neglecting. Um, but then there are people that they're trying to work with who are in pain because of the way these buildings are being designed or you may be a mathematician or you may be working with kids in a robotics program and you're dealing with the fact that there are all these kids who used to love science and then something happened and school and math and science is not fun anymore and there's all this stuff that makes that hard so God causes people to go where there is suffering and pain and bring redemption into it. But this is hard to do, right? It is hard to go into places where there is pain. And people talk a lot about burnout um, when you're trying to do that. So what I wanted to leave you with in the last couple minutes is that I think that there are some spiritual disciplines that make it possible to go into the places of pain and suffering, um, and I've just realized there's one that I left off of here that I'll say first, which is community. You don't do these things by yourself. You, know, you may be the only one at your workplace who's going into these places of pain. Hopefully you can find someone else, but at a minimum you find other believers to come around you, to support you, to encourage you, to help you in discerning, is this something I should be doing? Is this what the Lord is calling me to? Or is this so big that it's time to let it go and move on to something else? Humility. We don't believe that we ourselves are going to by ourselves fix this thing that's bigger than us. We were relying on the Lord to be at work in us addressing these places of suffering. And we entrust that ultimately it's going to be the Lord who makes all things right. And so it's okay if we don't fix everything completely while we're there. If we can just see that we're helping make things more redeemed, that we're reducing the suffering, that we're making it better and we feel clear that the Lord is at work in us, that that can be enough. We don't have to rely on ourselves as the Savior of whatever situation we're in because we know who the real Savior is. Discipline of generosity. We may have encountered this the most in the the discipline of giving of our money, um, but we also give of our time. And I think we need to give of our time generously in two ways. One is within the context of our work, but also giving of our time back to the Lord. I have attempted to keep the Sabbath to take a day off from work since I was a freshman in college. I tell my students at Swarthmore I'm a B-plus Sabbath keeper on a high school grading scale. I keep the Sabbath about 87% of the time, which for you Matthew people about an eighth of the about seven eighths of the time. So I would say one in eight weeks I mess up and I haven't managed to order my life so that I can get everything done that I have to get done and not really let other people down. I don't mind letting myself down, but I don't want to fail to come through for somebody else. So probably one out of eight weeks I end up doing some work on my Sabbath. But Just because you can't keep it perfectly is not a reason not to do it. Be generous of your time toward the Lord and toward yourself because the Sabbath is a gift of time uh, that the Lord wants to give to you and wants to give to you in order to return to him. And we could talk way more about how to keep the Sabbath than we have time for. Um, But I want to just get back to the final things, which are spiritual disciplines, risk to remember to be willing to take risks when the Lord is calling you to do something. You don't have to do things that are safe if it's really what God is calling you to do. Nobody thought it was safe for me to work part-time as a postdoc, but that was a risk that I really felt the Lord was calling to, and what goes with that discipline is trust. We just have to entrust ourselves to the Lord, and that's our career achievements, our future, our plans, so we're at 12:30. I powered through all that faster than I would have liked to. I do want you all to have time for lunch. Um, I'm happy to remain and answer questions for those who feel they don't have time to. But I want to just thank you all for being here. So go in peace.